Hi there, fam, and welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. The New Year weather is bristling here in the Midwest, but I'm still feeling the warmth because this community is just so wonderful and the support really is felt. And today's episode is a really important one because we're going to discuss disgust, as in disgust OCD, with the fantastic Rich Gallagher LMFT. So settle in, fam, because Rich speaks to this common form of OCD that, to be frank, is quite often a struggle for many of our loved ones. But as it turns out, there's an opportunity for us to gain some mastery in overcoming disgust-based OCD after all. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty, fam. We're uh, knock on wood <laughs> back in the flow of our regular life over here after the holidays. And if you heard the podcast last week, then you know my family was traveling. We were seeing our in-laws and we were down in Florida to celebrate the remainder of the holiday season. And now we are just back and entering into weather and wind. Oh, my. I've talked with many folks about how it's been really such a warm fall and winter overall here. But we are making up for last time in this week of weather. So we've already had our first e-learning day via the slush bowl that was the outdoors. And we're prepared for that trend to continue at least a time or two next week as well. I actually saw a meme this week that I loved because it defined January as one big Monday. And I was like, ma'am, ma'am, that's accurate. Yes, <laughs> that's accurate. So we're trying to get back into the flow of things. And my kid's actually at school today. So there's a sprinkle or two of normalcy for us. Love that for us. And you know what else I love for us, ma'am? I love that we... Us here at the OCD family community are getting to chat about disgust today. Now, whether you think about OCD as intrusive thoughts or obsessional doubts, I think we can all agree that the distress OCD brings about to our loved ones, to our relationships, it's no joke. There's nothing fun about it. And distress can manifest in a lot of different ways. So I think we often are talking about this anxious fear or this core fear underlying the thoughts of the lived experience of OCD, so intrusive. Or we talk about the reasoning errors surrounding our doubt, these imagined and confused conclusions that feel so distressing and absorbing. And again, why? Because that story about what that could mean for us, for our loved ones. It can bring about a lot of fear, discomfort, or anxiety as well. But another really common form of the distress manifests in this disgust-based arena. So what if the thought, the visual, a smell, or any additional trigger that brings about this distress is because of a disgusting experience or fearing the disgust? 
Well, as common as that is, we can also see based on research outcomes and shared experience that even in your most perfect implementation of treatment, often the disgusting thing remains disgusting. So what does this mean? Are our brains or the brains of our loved ones broken or just destined to feel awful as a result if it's a disgust-based trigger? Is there something we're doing wrong within a traditional exposure and response prevention model? Do we have any research that indicates any significant findings for disgust-based triggers? If you have experienced any of these questions or hear them now and think, hmm, yeah, 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 I want to know that, I'm interested to hear more, then you're in the right place, fam. Because today we have that very special guest in Rich Gallagher, and he will be laying out all of that and more on the table for discussion today. So for our returning fam, you know the drill. I am going to take a moment or two to brag on Rich here. And for our newer fam joining us, another warm welcome to you. You picked a great episode to dive in. Because if anything, I just think our chat today will increase hope. And that's my idea of starting 2024 off in the right direction. So Rich, he is a psychotherapist specializing in anxiety disorders and OCD treatment. And he's based in Ithaca, New York. He is a graduate of the International OCD Foundation's intensive clinical training known as the BTTI, or Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, and he has trained over 200 clinicians on the diagnosis and treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders. He is also a widely published author whose self-help titles include the Anxiety Journal, Conquer Social Anxiety Journal, and Stress-Free Small Talk, all via Rockridge Press. Prior to becoming a therapist, he was also one of the nation's best-selling customer service authors in the late 2000s, with four different books with HarperCollins, which is a very esteemed publishing house. And so what we're going to be talking about today with Rich is something that he has coined as the mastery approach when we think about the treatment of disgust-based themes of OCD. The mastery approach is really an evolution of research-based findings, application, real-time feedback from lived experience of OCD, and a collaboration between an OCD warrior and his provider that listened to his needs, his fears, his progress, or ways to go back to the drawing board and continue to jiggle the key, if you will, when results weren't optimized. And as you'll hear us reference, Rich has put a lot of time and dedication into researching this further and helping us to follow our client's lead on what works and what doesn't, so that failure isn't a status or something that is accepted for anyone, but that hope can still be found. So I'll let Rich explain this in greater detail, but I am just so thrilled and excited for all of us to be able to join in on this conversation. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And I am so honored today to have Rich Gallagher, LMFT, with the OCD Family community here. And we are just so thrilled to have you, Rich. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. Well, thank you, Nicole. And I am so honored to be on the OCD Family Podcast. I've been a big fan of it for a long time. You know, I tell people that if we could do with OCD what you do with Legos, we would have cured it long ago. I love it. I love it. And my son loves it because he loves Legos too. So I love that we got to join in that. But thank you so much. And I know it's not just flattery, but it's such an honor even to have your support because you have done so much to really help in our field of practice. And today we're going to be discussing 
a really important topic that I really feel like just doesn't get highlighted enough, perhaps because people run into some treatment problems and they're not sure what to do with it. I don't know. Possibly. But today we're going to be talking about disgust and themes of OCD that include disgust. So this can show up a lot within contamination-based OCD, but it's not exclusive to contamination. And so as we help the family understand a little more about what disgust OCD is, Rich, I know that you have done so much work Discussed and beyond. And so we'd love for you to share with the fam what you hope we can achieve today out of our conversation. I love the way you frame that because really my empathies lie with the, you know, the the 40% or whatever that number is of people who aren't responding to current evidence-based therapy. I mean, I'm a hardcore cognitive behavioral therapist. I have an engineering degree. I believe in the science. I'm a BTTI graduate. That's, of course, the OCD Foundation's intensive clinical training. But on the other hand, the the life experience that really changed things a lot for me, although this was always a philosophy of mine, is when I had a relapse of my own OCD. I have lived experience with OCD and with this disgust theme, although I'm embarrassed to admit I didn't know what it was called until about four or five years ago. It's okay. I have lived experience too, and I didn't even know it was called OCD until (laughs) after my BTTI. I was already doing OCD, so it's okay. We got grace for a rich, right, fam? Absolutely. And so, you know, my backstory is that as I was transitioning to retirement, I was diagnosed with a heart condition. I was put on a medication that plunged me into the worst depression of my life. And my contamination OCD, which had been pretty well managed throughout my life, went totally through the roof and ate me alive. And being a being a smart guy and being fairly well connected in the OCD profession, I sought out a couple of ERP therapists with rock star credentials, and it was a horrible experience for me. I mean, they were good therapists, and certainly not an therapist. They were doing what they were trained to do, and we were all following the messaging that the OCD profession had at the time. And what I found with my themes, which I learned were really disgust and not just pure contamination, what I discovered was that uh, as I would do exposures, I would actually habituate to the anxiety. I would do something. I would touch something yucky. I would sit with it. I wouldn't distract myself. I would hit that extinction burst that we talk about where your anxiety goes down Mm -hmm. after a period. But my sense of disgust would get nothing but worse. I'd be cross-contaminating everything in my life and I'd Mm -hmm. feel even more and more closed in. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I ended up traumatized and housebound from that Mm -hmm. treatment. It was a horrible experience. It was a very dark place and I was there for almost two years. But thankfully, In my case, the story didn't end there. Thankfully, I eventually hooked up with a fantastic clinician. Uh, Her name was Dr. Katrina Blomquist. She had been one of the senior clinicians at Cornell University, and she's part of now a big group practice called the MindWell Center here in upstate New York. And what's great about her is her ERP chops are excellent. I mean, she did a lot of doctoral work on this, and she really knew her stuff when it came to ERP. But for the first time, she really listened to what was working and not working for me. And so our therapy sessions were really brainstorming sessions. Neither of us knew our way out of the jungle yet. And we spent months literally jiggling the key in the lock, trying different strategies. And so eventually we found an approach almost by accident that worked for me and later turned out to have emerging literature support behind it. And I eventually disseminated this as a proposed treatment protocol for disgust-based OCD. And it just changed everything about my life. And I recovered very quickly once I discovered what to do. To give you a quick summary for everybody in the family here as to what this approach is, is the traditional ERP model is that you try to get used to yucky things. You habituate. And that's because 
you know, most OCD triggers are based on fear and fear is processed by our amygdala, small gland in our brain, which triggers a short-term response to fight, freeze, or run away. And because of the fact that it's a short-term response and it takes place in short-term memory, mm-hmm. it habituates over time or inhibitory learns, depending on what framing they use about it. Mm-hmm. Discussed, however, um, we discovered, and I discovered doing a literature search as I was going through my own treatment. In the early 2000s, they did MRI studies showing that disgust is processed in a very different part of the brain, uh, the insula. It goes into long-term memory and it often doesn't habituate or doesn't habituate very quickly. So for example, Nicole, when you were a kid, if you ate something and got really sick from it, I bet you still avoid that food nowadays. Mm-hmm. And if I tried to get you to habituate to it, I bet it wouldn't go very well in a lot of cases. Yeah, you know what, Rich, I'll pause you right there, too, because Rich, last fall with Bronwyn Schroyer and with Chris Tronson presented at the online OCD conference, and Chris talked about the smell of bacon as one of his triggers. I got sick on bacon when I was younger, and I couldn't even deal with the smell of it, let alone eating it, the, t- of the thought of the taste of it. I couldn't have even told you what it was like. I did understand that was OCD once I started becoming an OCD therapist and, and understanding my own lived experience. But I still, my husband would like take, my husband was a trooper, he loves bacon. He would take it out on the grill outside in the middle of the winter in the Midwest. <laughs> I mean, total accommodation, right? But if the whole house was going to smell like something that was that, it was like, I'm not scared of it, but it does make me feel yuck, right? It makes me feel gross. It makes me, and I'm not afraid of getting sick. I, you know, it, it's not even that. It's just like a whole vibe that I couldn't quite shake. And so now I can tolerate it, but I still don't like the smell of it. I came home from work the other night and I was like, you guys have brunch for dinner? And Patrick's like, yes. And I'm like, I made bacon, do you? But I just, I would rather be able to live life, engage with my family. I still don't like the smell of it. I don't have to ever like the smell of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Exactly correct. And so what was really interesting from an OCD lens is that in 2015, it wasn't really over the last five to 10 years that we've really started looking at the implications of this for OCD. Emika Ludwig in Australia did an encyclopedic study of all the studies that had been done about ERP and disgust and found it wasn't terribly effective and the results weren't terribly durable. And that makes logical sense when you look at how most of us experience disgust. Of course, the difference between disgust that most of us experience like with the bacon and discussed OCD is it becomes a preoccupation and that was a really strong trigger. In my case, the core fear was that I wouldn't be able to sleep because I'd feel so disgusted. And unfortunately, sometimes that came true as well. I mean, at my worst, I was sleeping two to four hours a night and it was a horrible experience. But, you know, this was a case where we take a model that works for most things that we call OCD or many things with a certain percentage of people and try to bolt it onto something that's biologically very different. And so as I was going through my own treatment, I found a lot of literature correlating disgust with contamination OCD, acknowledging that it didn't often habituate, that ERP wasn't always effective. And all these papers ended with exactly the same conclusion, which is golly, we need to study this more. 
which was really frustrating because I wanted to figure out a way to get well. Mm -hmm. So here's where things changed for me radically. And I wish I could say that it came from years of academic research, but it was a total accident. I had a big motor home in my driveway. Mm -hmm. And of course, we was the pandemic. We were all stuck at home mm -hmm. and it got infested with yellow jackets in the ceiling air conditioner oven. They were coming into the RV. And so we had a technician come and bravely deal with the yellow jackets, bombed it with cans and cans of insecticide and not realizing that the yellow jackets had eaten through the ceiling of the RV and my whole RV got flooded with insecticide. So, uh, and given the state I was in at that point, I couldn't get near it for months and I couldn't even get within feet of it. And so if you know anything about recreational vehicles, they have to be winterized every winter. Otherwise the pipes burst and it ruins the RV basically. So I, I had to go in there. So with Katrina's blessings, I did something that's usually a huge no-no for ERP, which is use some judicious safety behaviors. I went in there with a spacesuit of ratty clothes I was never going to wear again, and yeah. gloves and masks and you name it. And it was horrible. It was like World War III going in there. But I, I got it done. I didn't habituate to anything. Yeah, <laughs> but you I were like, I didn't love it. 10 out of 10, don't recommend. <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly. This is the old ERP Act model. It's all your values. Yeah. So... But here's what opened the heavens for me. Two weeks later, I had to go back and do some follow-up work to clean up from the winterization. And I went back in the RV with the same safety behaviors and I discovered something fascinating. I was no more comfortable with the insecticide. I'm still no more comfortable with the insecticide than I ever was, but I was much more comfortable being in the RV. Yeah. Knowing that I could use the safety behaviors to keep myself safe and put myself in that situation. So I started doing more of that. And so the next thing I know, remember, I was basically housebound at that point. Right. I'm driving the RV around. I'm getting it repaired. I'm taking it to Philadelphia to consign it for sale. And now I'm leaving the house. I'm going shopping. A few months later, we decided to move to Arizona for the winter. And uh, now here I am eating quesadillas, going to baseball games and hiking Sabino Canyon every day. And, and then a few months after that, I went to Europe. I'm a dual Czech citizen. I spent some time in the Czech Republic for the first time and had an incredibly good time. So for me, exposure to life was what really got me over it. And I want to share just one quick example of why the mastery approach, where you're mastering an avoided situation rather than habituating the trigger was yeah. really important. Yeah. My biggest trigger is poisonous plants. Like oleanders, especially, they're like the most toxic plant out there. If you eat one leaf of them, you know, that will kill an adult human being. Most people will say, all right, fine. I don't eat oleanders, so no problem. Yeah. You know, but for me, the idea of stepping on the leaves or brushing against the plant is like totally no bueno. And so we moved to Arizona for the winter, sight unseen, we're at least an apartment for three months. It is surrounded by oleanders. It's like blood in an operating room. Oh my, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was thinking, like, I don't even know where they grow, what region. Lucky you. Lucky you. In the Southwest. Yes. They're also very drought-tolerant plants. So every disco apartment complex in Arizona has only hipsters because of the only green thing that didn't grow in, in Arizona. Oh, no. So make a long story short, what was really important about it, this trip to Arizona was a watershed for me because... I left Arizona three months later, no more comfortable about oleanders, but I took reasonable accommodations to not brush against the plants. I was careful about where I parked. I'd watch people park and wade through the oleanders. I was like, nah, that's not me. <laughs> but here's what's interesting, that I had a great time. 
Right. I enjoyed this day. I don't remember a single bad day there. So the idea that I could absolve myself of using reasonable judicious safety behaviors versus the ERP model that I have to get used to this somehow. Yeah. And that I could make reasonable accommodations and get used to living life changed my life. And so eventually I wrote this up as a proposed treatment protocol for disgust OCD, especially after finding out there was literature support for what I was doing, uh -huh. which I'll get to, and disseminated it to the online OCD community a couple of years ago. And they got a fairly decent response to it. But what really changed everything was my buddy, Chris Tronson, he posted in that same group a year later and said, hey, who's this Rich Gallagher guy? I found this blog and it really helped me recover. And thanks to Chris's advocacy, and Chris is just such a, a wonderful spokesperson for lived experience mm -hmm. and for treatment. And, and he's such a wonderful humane therapist as well. So very much aligned with how I think about therapy with my own clients. But thanks to his advocacy, it got published as the lead clinical article in the spring IOCDF newsletters, you know, with Bronwyn Troyer, who's also my buddy and shares the same lived experience we've discussed. We had a great, one of those well-attended sessions at the online OCD conference. Yeah. And so it was really, and I have had, Nicole, a flood of responses from clinicians and sufferers alike saying that this approach has been game changing for them, that now people are leaving the house, they're functioning better. And almost every one of them will tell me that losing the shame of using reasonable accommodations to live life and having the exposure to getting ice cream and having the exposure to yeah. spending time with playing with your kid who's yeah. contaminating the house. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, it's okay if you put on a pair of gloves or do something that isn't hurting people. It's fine to habituate to the situation and gradually, if, if possible, pull back on those safety behaviors and live life. So, fam, for anybody new joining us, exposure and response prevention has long been the gold standard for the treatment of OCD in the United States. And its premise is on we expose ourselves to the things that are causing distress, to the obsessional, intrusive content, right? And then what happens next is if we can practice response prevention, this is an oversimplification, but there is definitely more info here at the podcast, over at IOCDF, all around, if you're interested in hearing or learning more about ERP. But the response prevention piece, which is really important, is if we are able to prevent the response, literally, if we're able to not do the compulsion, then our brain will learn whether this happens or not. I, I can live my life. I can do my things. And often the ERP model is very targeted towards a core fear. And what you're distinguishing is an exposure model to the life you want. And so really engaging in the life you want, which from a lot of folks will discuss ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's very value-laden, as, as I think any therapeutic goal should be. It shouldn't be about what I think is best for you or what society says is ultimately best. It's about you being able to go play soccer with your kids outside or, or do the thing. You're right. Go get the ice cream. Go to Arizona. Have those experiences. And so I really like it because I think it, it can be hard sometimes for folks to understand, well, what's the difference, though? from ERP because you're still doing the exposures. Yes, what we're saying is live your life. And if your life has gotten smaller, your world has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, 
because of the fear that you experience that is really like so intense and so prolonged. One of the things you distinguished when you guys were training in October was that we're not talking about like it can take minutes or hours or a couple practices of an ERP exposure and this goes away. Just like you said when we were talking about the bacon, this is committed to long-term memory and it could take years. And so when we look at discuss triggers and we go, we want to engage in life, but it could take years, my people feel just defeated because they're like, well, this thing isn't going away. This worked here, but this thing isn't going away. And so really it's a shift in the focus of I'm exposing myself, but not to eliminate or obliterate this core fear. It's really exposing yourself to the life you want to live more fully. Would that be a good way of saying it? You are the queen of summarizing. (laughs) That was was a wonderful explanation. And I want to put a finer point on because there's a really important aspect to this mastery approach, which is the goal of ERP is to make yourself uncomfortable so that you habituate, so that you reach what we call the extinction burst where your anxiety drops off a cliff if you simply wait long enough with it. And that's the beauty and the glory of ERP. And I've trained over 100 therapists here in upstate New York on ERP for the right themes, including other themes of mine. It's like a magic eraser that takes fear away if you titrate it appropriately and use it. So I'm a big fan of it. But I'm going to throw out a, a religious concept here, heresy. So people think that heresy is a false religious belief. But in reality, most practical situations of heresy is a true belief taken to extremes. And so what we're discovering over time with the literature is that trying to apply the habituation model to disgust is somewhat heretical because of the fact that disgust triggers don't habituate. You don't get that extinction burst. And it's like trying to get used to sitting in a hot car or wearing an itchy sweater. And every evidence-based OCD treatment has a certain failure rate nowadays. And I am convinced that a big part of the failure rate of the habituation model is exactly this issue of lack of habituation. Yeah. Because I think properly titrated ERP is an extremely humane treatment model, uh-huh. uh, but only when it works. Yeah. And ever since my recovery, I've done a lot of advocacy around the idea that we don't treat any tool as a religion. We yeah. treat it as a tool and that it's supposed to work for the patient in front of you. One thing that's really close to my heart on this is that, you know, I totally understand the gleeful focus that we've had on exposure in the OCD profession, because what's happened for so many years is that people with OCD would make the brave decision to get help. They go see someone and get Freudian analysis. It wouldn't help them. Mm -hmm. They'd feel it even help doesn't help. So there was almost a militance in the ERP community that you have to do something that's evidence-based and research-based and has 40 random controlled trials. Even though ERP itself was first proposed through clinical case studies from working clinicians, not through big random control trials. And it was a radical idea at the time that was rejected by the Freudians of the 1950s for much the same reason. Yeah. So fast forward to 2023, Mm -hmm. I really feel there's a cultural issue that we had to overcome, that we are overcoming, thankfully. The IOCDF has made great strides to opening the tent to new ideas, and it's been wonderful to see. But we've had a cultural issue where because people are trained that ERP involves pushing the reluctant to do the uncomfortable, then there's a cultural presumption that if it isn't working, it must be a motivational problem, that it's the patient's fault. They're not working hard enough. 
Another thing that was huge in my recovery was discovering the lived experience community. Almost all my crimes, which you have on your podcast now, and, uh, <laughs> and we shared our stories and discovered that we weren't alone in our experiences. And so, and the advocacy that's come out of that has led to inference therapy, for example, my discussed protocol. We've really tried hard to have a voice in the profession to open the tents and delight in emerging strategies and new ideas and reach everybody, not just the special brave people for whom the habituation model works. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's interesting because I think I was reflecting on, again, I'm just going to keep mentioning this amazing uh, training you guys did, but I, I was reflecting on it and I thought, in my own way, I was in my own management of my lived experience of OCD, which I would say is subclinical at this point, but it wasn't always. And by subclinical fam, I mean, it just, it's not getting in the way of me living my life. It's not that it doesn't come up. I still have my brain. So my brain's going to brain and it's going to come up. But one of the ways that this showed up for me and the way I guess I just kind of packaged it for myself was that not necessarily that I was cheating because I'm allowing a safety behavior, but I was giving myself some self-compassion. So going back to the bacon example, if it's freezing and my husband's willing to go out in three degree temperature (laughs) to cook bacon on the grill so that he can eat and so that the kids can eat it and I can tolerate it being at the table, even though I can still smell it, but at least he cooked it outside. And that was his olive branch to me. I also realized that's annoying. And I would rather be making that brunch or breakfast together and having the family time and all of that. But he's having to run in and out and we have to, you know, wipe off the snow boots and all this, we don't do shoes in the house. And it was really a lot of monkeying around for me. And from an OCD standpoint, you'd be like, well, isn't that family accommodation? But at the same point, if it was really, and it did, it just bothered me, the smell of it, all of it. If it really bothered me this much, would it be okay that he is willing to cook the bacon outside? And so what this led to over time was I'm going to give myself permission, not because I think ERP would say, yep, that's okay, but I'm I'm going to give myself permission and go, this does make me feel sick, but I would rather have the joint family time. And I would rather be able to give that to my husband. Even, I'm never going to have to like the smell of it. I'm never going to love that bouquet. Some people are like, you're, you're crazy, girl, because it, uh, they love the smell of bacon. But you know what? <laughs> different strokes for different folks, and I don't love it. And so I would sit there, and also my son, who has lived experience of OCD, who's very aware that bacon is a trigger for me and cheese is a trigger for him, he will see me, and he's like, Mom, you're a warrior. You're fighting your OCD, and I think I'm going to have some cheese. Because he wants to join me oh, in it. Good for him. That is more value-driven that I get to show good that I can still live. I still find the smell disgusting. It still makes me feel a little nauseous because it goes back to this story. And you've brought up the inference space. So the story that goes into the disgust for me. But at the same time, I want to be able, my husband's going to listen to this. He's like, 
Thanks. I want to be. I want to serve him. I don't. It's one thing. He 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 did fine. Cleanup of the bacon was much easier when you do it on the grill on foil and all this different stuff. It's much easier mm-hmm. to just pitch and stuff like that. But at the same time, it was like I want to be able to have that family time together. I want to be able to show my son that mm-hmm. you can do things not because you like them, but because it's more valuable sitting there together, going, "We cool. We're strong people. We're fighting our OCD." Not because we've learned to like it, because we've learned to fight it, you know? And and so that was huge, but it kind of packaged as self-compassion. I was going to give myself some grace to say, even if I'm an OCD specialist, even if I have a podcast, I'm going to be okay with not liking the bacon. I'm going to be okay that he's willing to go out and make it on the grill. I'm also going to be okay if he makes it inside. Not because... It's not disgusting to me, but because I value time with him more. Absolutely. There is so much good stuff in that narrative, Nicole. I just want to unpack a couple of points from that. One is, you know, this idea of giving yourself grace. For me personally, and for almost everybody I've treated or talked to, that's been half of their recovery, is losing the shame that they are not doing what the methodology tells them they're supposed to be doing. Because the extinction burst model, the habituation model works so well for so many other themes of OCD Mm -hmm. that we mistakenly think that we're not well until we're hugging poisonous plants and niffing bacon every morning and getting used to it. And that's not the way that life works. And this isn't the way that uh, people without OCD get over disgust. You know, paramedics don't roll around with dead bodies to get used to them. They do their job. New mothers who are disgusted by poop don't stick their hands in a pail of dirty diapers. They change their baby a lot. And if they have to give themselves grace to do that with gloves and they're not hurting anybody, and that helps them to get used to that trigger over a long period of time, yeah, that's okay. And so understanding, moving away from heresy and into how these things serve us, I also love the way that you've brought ACT into this, which because this is very ACT-based, this mastery approach. Uh, what I preach is that this is pure act, which is getting comfortably used to doing things in your life. That is the big difference between the mastery model and the habituation model is ERP involves getting used to yucky things and habituating to them. But for triggers that don't habituate, the mastery model is about, listen carefully, making yourself comfortable enough to do lots of practice in situations. And I love the interplay between you and your husband because we're both family therapists and both LMFTs. And these are, this is family therapy 101. I mean, long before OCD was on my radar, I've been married to my wife for 45 years. And when we first got married, I was a software executive way back in the day. And uh-huh. she declared early on that I don't want to be ironing your shirts. That feels like a press womanhood to me. So, you know, that was, <laughs> I love it. and she's a cat lover who is married to someone who never saw the point of live animals in a household, but so here, so here I am up at five in the morning as I'm a software executive ironing my shirts. And on the other hand, I've never changed a cat pan in my life. (laughs) So so this is what we call behavioral exchanges. And it's a a good concept in family therapy. And since this is the OCD family podcast, this is an interesting aspect of family accommodation. If you read an OCD textbook from 20 years ago, and you get to the chapter in family accommodation, they'd say, oh, never Never accommodate, Mm -hmm. never give in somebody's compulsion. At the 2015 OCD conference in Boston, the royalty of family accommodation, you know, Alec Pollard, Barbara Van Oppen, and others got up in a panel and jointly declared, we were wrong about all this stuff. You've got to co-create goals. And so 
Yeah. I obviously with disgust or any contamination fears, it does impact the family. And so I think our family therapy skills come into play quite a bit in terms of co-creating goals on both sides. I joke that people accuse us family therapists of being neutral in family conflict, but we're actually much worse than that. We take everybody's sides. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I think? Bias. I am an LMFT too. Yes. We're marriage and family therapists. But what I will say is, I think that's part of what makes it powerful though, because you see how people, anybody experiencing, whether it's physical health, mental health, spiritual health, anything, it doesn't exist in a vacuum and exists in the context of these different relationships. It impacts that. And if you come into a session where you feel like your loved one's side is complete, I get this a lot in couples counseling, right? Where where a couple comes in and they're like, they're going to see me as the enemy because I'm the villain in this story. And it's so important to realize like the courage it took for anybody to walk across that door to log on for a telehealth appointment. There's not a villain in the story. There's people hurting that have been in a painful situation and we need to hear them. Them, not one person, them. Them. And so and so I think your point is is well taken. <laughs> Again, my bias as a family therapist, but everybody in the room needs their side taken. Even the OCD sufferer, and I think as a person with lived experience too, I Absolutely. think a lot of the sufferers can relate to this. Like, yes, you wouldn't be here, fam. None of us would be here if we weren't trying to help our loved ones. So of course, of course we love them. But it can feel like the smackdown when the warrior starts this treatment process and the family starts this treatment process. In fact, I hear the feedback a lot from family members. I'm just trying to love my person. I didn't mean to do all these things that weren't helpful. And it's like, you know, my, my response time and again is thank you for loving your person. This person is going to have such a better future. And has a better right now because they're loved by you. You've shown that you've loved them, but there's so much shame that comes with that. Beautifully put. And as a family therapist, I think family therapy is really a great combination with treating OCD, honestly. I use a lot of strategies that I, I worried would get my BTTI card revoked. Because <laughs> so, I felt it was really important that, and it helps that I had lived experience too and, and felt for that as well as the family. And so what I often did was I used strategies like what I call throwing out your numbers. So if somebody needed an accommodation, they'd rate how badly they needed it from zero to 10, zero to worst. And I'd have the family members rate how much of an imposition this was for them from zero to 10. And my rules were, was less than a three, you know, suck it up. If it was more than a seven accommodated if it's in between or the scores are tied, negotiate. That strategy worked really well. But the other thing I did, this is where, again, I worried about getting my BTTI card remote. I would give the sufferer a get out of jail free card that they could pull out once a week. So they had some control over the process. It wasn't just Dr. Wonderful telling them to make themselves uncomfortable. It was them co-creating a strategy with me and with the family yeah. from week to week. Yeah. And I also believe gradually titrated ERP. And that worked really well for us as well. So this applies to all of family therapy. I mean, one thing I always found interesting is that, you know, even though I've been married forever, we've never raised children. And I wondered how that would work 
as a family therapist. And it turns out it works great because I'm the short, <laughs> funny, bald guy. doesn't act like a parent. The family would be marching in and, and the parents would say, Johnny lied to us. And I'd say, well, of course, he's 14 years old, right? And Johnny would be there, thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you get me. <laughs> and, and the parents are like, yeah, I was 14 once. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it can be hard. It, yeah, it can be it can be a challenge. And I like the idea, too, of a coupon, a get out of the jail free card, a worry journal, go and, and give yourself this 30 minutes to do it, you know, or whatever it is. I like the, I like the ideas of that, because what it made me think of as you were talking about it. And we do this very much in trying to conceptualize liberation oriented treatment for the neuroforming community. Right. Yes. We need to respect people's agency. And like you said, sometimes people feel condemned for not being motivated enough. Having agency doesn't mean you're not motivated. That means if somebody, I, I run into this with my father all the time. My father's had a number of different health issues, has survived so many lightning strikes in terms of his stage four cancer diagnosis. But at this point, he has a lot of neuropathy and he can't stand very well. And he has one of those lift chairs that can lift him up. He has wheelchair. He has a, a walker. He has canes. But damn it, if that man doesn't want to stand on his own, walk on his own, even though it can lead to these really hard consequences. And we can worry about safety for him. We can go oh, I don't want to see him break a hip. This could be a, a life-changing or life-ending injury. I don't want to see these bad things happen. And so out of protective fear, but also wanting him to make the right choice, make some, make some good choices, we're like, please use the chair, use the walker, use the this, use the that. But also we have to say, if your life is reduced to, I can't even decide when I'm going to stand up myself, like what, what, what Absolutely. do you have to be able to say like, this is, this is all I've left. If it's like I chose to stand up, not with the walker, because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, then we have Absolutely. to respect that he wants to do it, even though we are very, very conscious of all the consequences that could come from it. And I think the same happens within treatment. We have to respect people's agency and not just condemn lack of motivation because they're working so hard. And they're probably doing so many things that are so outside of their comfort zone. And some of it may habituate. Some of it may resolve because we were able to reduce the inferential confusion. But also some of it may linger. And we have to respect that they're a human, not a machine that's malfunctioning. They're a human making a choice. They get to make choices. I get to make choices. You get to make choices. So I think that's so important and such a just... It's such a sacred part of what my understanding of the mastery approach is because it's it's really giving yourself permission. And when you give yourself permission, then you're not violating your own moral order. You're giving yourself permission to be human, right? Absolutely. And you're not shaming the client in front of you by a treatment strategy. I really resonate with the story about your dad. My late mother, when my father died, they were New Yorkers, you know, even though they were living in Arizona at the time of his passing. You know, my mother bravely started to drive, for example, and was yeah. not the best driver in the world. And I remember when she got arrested for leaving the scene of an accident for denting somebody in the parking lot, oh. and she got probation. 
But, you know, for the last few years of her life, we devoted a lot of her energies to keeping my mom out of jail. And <laughs> that's, that is the best story. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but I love the. <laughs> it was it was funny because my mother is truly a character and we loved her and, you know, and we respected her autonomy and agency because that was so important to her moving on to widowhood and her living a good life. Yeah. So I think that's such an important thing in treatment. One of the things I do a lot is advocacy on anxietycamp.com. Yeah. I do a lot of advocacy around the idea of not having Dr. Wonderful judge what a patient is doing. Obviously, you can share your expertise. Obviously, we all want to work with approaches that have some empirical basis behind it. We know that's a big thing in the OCD profession. Because again, you know, again, people make the brave decision to get help. They get Freudian analysis. They don't get well. We don't want that happening. But on the other hand, so much of among our community of clinicians with lived experience with OCD, so much of our experience, our bad treatment experiences has been Dr. Wonderful telling us what we have to do and it not working for us and not being listened to. So I will always advocate for that 40% or whatever the number is that isn't benefiting from evidence-based treatment, that we treat them as a human being, we listen to them, we don't shame them, and that we keep jiggling the key in the lock to find strategies that work for them. Yeah. Yeah, I have a number of family members on both my family of origin and as well as the family I'm married into, as well as my little nuclear family we've created with OCD here. And I was commenting, and I, for their privacy, I, I won't divulge necessarily the relationship, but I was commenting and having a discussion the other day with some family members. And they were like, well, this person is doing so well right now, though. Like, they're doing so well right now in terms of managing aspects of their OCD. And I'm like, they're always doing well, even when they're at the height of their distress. But Bravo. people think doing well means you're not talking about it, so it must not be bothering you. I guarantee that script is running in the background always. Yes, But absolutely. this person has been able to prioritize living in life over that script and has been able to help dismiss it, that script will forever be a difficult script for them. It's not habituated in many, many years, and it's not going to. But it's, it's a misguided assumption that now that must just be gone because you're able to function so freely. No, it's that that person has really invested in living mm -hmm. their life. And that's Absolutely. where the freedom has come. And so Absolutely. it's not that it doesn't trip them up and it's going to get intense at times and it's going to fan the flame. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. This is definitely a committed to long-term memory issue and a foundational issue at that point. Absolutely. And I want to build on that because that, that is so powerful what you just said. And I think that's really the key to recovery for so many people. Nobody is a bigger fan of evidence-based treatment than I am. And I believe in the science and I believe that we shouldn't be using wacko, new ways, unproven, you know, strategies for people who are paying us to help them get well. Our expertise really counts for something. But on the other hand, the idea that we're engaging with life and that we're listening to how this person best engages with life is so important. And as you know, this is very personal for me. Again, I was in a really dark place for a long time at the hands of evidence-based treatment that wasn't working for me, 
with clinicians who weren't necessarily listening to the fact that that wasn't my fault and that we needed to try something different. And yeah. I think when I went to, for example, you mentioned the script running all the time. Yeah. So when I went to Europe for the first time, I've done a couple of times in the last year. And I love Prague. I think it's the nicest city in the face of the earth. But to make a long story short, I took reasonable precautions. If I had waited until I was over all of my disgust fears to go, I'd probably never go because I'd probably never get there. But instead, I packed a pack of food service gloves and packed my OCD along. We both had a great time. <laughs> and actually, I was really, you mentioned about the script always running. I'm going to say one thing, though. If you crack my head open, you'd find a pretty happy guy inside most of the time. And I had a wonderful time living life even if I occasionally needed accommodations to get over the things that are triggers for me. And so I do a lot of advocacy about following the evidence, but not taking it to the point where we're treatment shaming people, where Dr. Wonderful is deciding how well you are and uh, where there's no flexibility for the human being sitting in front of you in the therapy room. Yeah. I don't know, Rich, if you recall, because I, I went to a number of different sessions, but I think this might have been in the chat on your session, if this sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Someone was like, yeah. we're really struggling with these exposures to cockroaches. Was that right. your chat? And that was our session. Yeah. yeah. And people were like, but why do we have to like cockroaches? That's right. Right. Exactly. Now, if, exactly. if, if you have, if you live in an apartment building that has a cockroach issue and you feel like I can't even go to my home because there's cockroaches, that is right. That's a struggle. But you never have to be like, oh, I want to pet cockroaches. This is great, you know? The exposure is to life, not the cockroaches. It's to, to being able to be in your house. It's to be able to function with your family and so forth. I would sum up my philosophy as I strongly support current evidence-based therapy as long as it works and as long as the client buys into it and it works for them. And if not, we have tools out there. And, you know, anything we use should have some empirical basis. In fact, you know, I'm not ever going to suggest mud baths or chanting for people with OCD, but being able to be open to disseminating emerging literature. And this is the other thing that I think has been very powerful about trends I've seen in the IOCDF, which has done a wonderful job lately of disseminating new ideas. I really have to tip my hat to Chris Tronson, Liz McInvale. Jeff Szymanski, when he was head of the IOCDF, oh, yeah. was a big driver. He's, he was personally responsible for the growth of ACTS, for example. He championed this, having my discussed article printed. Wonderful, wonderful trends that we're seeing in the profession where we at least talk about these things mm -hmm. and share ideas and delight in each other's company. And we're all on the same team to getting people well. And the most important part of it is we're now taking the voice of working clinicians as well as top-down data that comes from research. Because... The classic model nowadays, and you know, I, I come from an academic family and I've done refereed research in my previous technical career. So I, I get this world and I understand publisher perish. And I understand that all science has an agenda. I'm not saying it's academic fraud. It's not, but it, what it is, is that all research is designed to show that something you believe works, works. And so that in turn informs the experimental conditions. Right. I mean, these are the analogy. If you've ever had a CAT scan, you know, my, my, former career was computer graphics. And in fact, my first book was a, a textbook on 3D computer graphics. It's knee deep in equations, but I published the first paper on how to optimize CAT scans so you can see them more quickly. And so how did that end up? Almost as soon as the ink was dry on my paper, other competing interests came up with better algorithms. And my place in history now is people saying, you know, we're 20 times faster than the Gallagher algorithm. And 
<laughs> I don't feel about that. I'm, I'm delighted because we have better cat scans. <laughs> right. They <laughs> see so that's that's the same kind of ethos that we need in the research community. But to circle us around to OCD, you have a random controlled trial. You look at 400 sufferers. You give half of them the RP. The other half read Golf Digest. 60% of them approve. Their Yale Brown scores drop by eight points and whatever. And we declare that evidence-based. But as someone who was part of that 40% and as someone who was in a really dark place because it wasn't working for me, my sympathies are always going to be with finding ways to reach everybody. Yeah. No. I'm never going to blindly accept a treatment failure rate and be close to new ideas. Right. Because we don't have a cure. And so we keep pushing and we keep trying and we keep experimenting. But you're right. I mean, data pools, it's one of the things why data has to be replicated because people can kind of really try to set up a situation so that the data reads how they want it to read. But and it, and again, it's not to say that the data is false because it has to be then replicated. It has to have all these things to prove that, oh, yeah, it actually can do that. This wasn't just carefully crafted to give the outcome. But in another respect, it's like sometimes we get so focused on crafting the data we already have, the viewpoint, the analyses we already have that we're missing other opportunities to be able to come in and treat because we're trying to continue to refine and we and it's great to refine on what's already existing but it's interesting rich my husband's also a software engineer ain't good for <laughs> and him. so he he in my own heart yes and so i i can very much vibe with what you're saying in the sense of too like having clinicians and researchers with lived experience opens the door to having real-time tester feedback of Correct. how this is landing and you don't you you don't build a theory on that alone but an important part of releasing these software updates in the software world is we need to make sure it works for users well how do we know it works for users we need to test Data it a testing. couple different ways and see right. right so you're doing the research for the testing but you also can have direct feedback and guidance of you know what would be helpful though <laughs> This, this, That's a this, perfect, yeah, the perfect analogy. And where we're heading is we really need the voice of people with lived experience in the research agendas. These people, the fact that we've gotten together as a community, it's very similar to the nothing about us without us movement neurodiversity, for example. Yeah. It's already had an impact and a very positive impact. The, the, the lived experience community, as you and Katie pointed out in your last podcast, that community was really instrumental in moving forward. An approach has been out in the literature for 20 years. But now it's become a thing because of the advocacy of people in that lived experience community. So, you know, having those voices is really important. The problem that we've faced in the past has never been bad methods. ERP is a great approach and still the first club out of my bag as a clinician, especially when it's humanely delivered. The problem always had been a focus on using the evidence so that people don't succumb to Freudian analysis has unwittingly with the best of intentions sometimes turned into tribalism and gatekeeping. And yeah. now, thankfully, as a community, we've all started to push back and then that's extremely healthy for our profession. The other one thing I'll throw out also is that we're not just pulling ideas out of there. I didn't disseminate this mastery approach until I found literature support for what I was doing. There's a couple of emerging pieces of literature where they've done fairly large studies on the judicious use of safety behaviors. That showed that they were fairly effective. John Abramowitz's group did one group that showed that it was as effective as straight ERP. Adam Radonsky and the late Jack Rockland did a large study with contamination that showed 
that it worked quite well. So using emerging literature to try new things with people who aren't benefiting from treatment as usual has been a watershed in the OCD community. Yeah. You know, I went to, at the in-person conference in San Francisco last July, I went to a lived experience panel on emotional contamination. And I had brought this up too during the online conference because I was thinking about it and how discuss OCD. I really can see an overlap. I think I had asked at the time, and I think Chris had mentioned, yeah, I mean, it can, it, it kind of depends too on what the core fear is, but in these discuss space, because I think emotional contamination is a fairly a difficult thing for for folks to agree on and wrap their mind around because it, it is somewhat subjective but it's an OCD period it's <laughs> it's subjective to our own experience of it and how it's manifesting but I've thought about this too for for folks that not only can't leave the house but maybe can't even leave their bedroom or a certain room of the house because really? of feeling like this whole space now is contaminated and and it really locks into this longer term, like it's not habituating. If it was about habituating, it would have already habituated, right? And so I was just thinking about this panel that I saw and I thought, you know, the mastery approach, I think, aligns really well. I had talked with at least one of the presenters, too, about how I felt like ICBT could fit really well. And... Bronwyn, at your online conference presentation, talked about ICBT and how this can fit into the work around Discuss OCD. And so can you help the family? And again, ICBT for new fam, that's inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, you can see a watercolor chat or past episodes here. You can go to icbt.online, learn more about ICBT, a number of other good podcasts as well. But in terms of how the mastery approach can bridge well, no, no pun intended in terms of our ICBT bridge reference here, but in terms of how we can combine the mastery approach within an ICBT lens. I think that's a great question. I'd love to unpack that. And Bronwyn gave a fantastic presentation on combining the two things. Bronwyn, I joke that she's my doppelganger because we had very similar lived experience with disgust and we've been comparing notes for a long time. But, you know, first using mastery, the first point I want to make here is that the mastery approach transcends, in my view, just disgusts. And that case of emotional contamination is very important because somebody with emotional contamination might, in fact, pass a disgust assessment. They might be fine with people pouring ketchup on their ice cream or touching a fly swatter or someone picking their nose. But they're disgusted by physical contact with people because they're a sexual abuse survivor, for example. And so... They may pass with flying colors the standard assessments you've discussed, but still their way out may be to use, again, a similar mastery approach where they use judicious safety behaviors to reinterest themselves to life. For example, go on platonic dates with people, learn how to set boundaries with the people you start to connect with and build your own path towards the nourishing relationships you might want with people on your own terms. And again, I think the mastery model applies to a lot of situations that don't habituate. And so that's key. Now, think about ICBT. I'm a huge fan of ICBT because it's such a wonderful cognitive approach that works for so many people. Bronwyn did a beautiful synthesis at that conference. She laid out how ICBT, where, you know, as Nicole was pointing out, where you're looking at the origins of 
the doubt and the false story that you're getting sucked into and using the, the knowledge of that logic to treat it like a scary movie that you can detach yourself from eventually. And so she's talks very well about how she can use ICBT concepts to detach yourselves from the what ifs, the unseen, the story that these discussed fears pull you into. And she's done a wonderful synthesis of that. I would expand that to every emerging treatment approach that could have its hooks into how you perceive the situations you're trying to habituate to. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the things that made me think. So recently I aired the second annual, it's my second year in the podcast, so it's, <laughs> but it happens to be the second OCD related disorder series. And I was talking with Rich before we recorded today, how in talking about misophonia, and we talked about how maybe ICBT could be helpful in terms of addressing some of the cognitive perceptions or beliefs that mm -hmm. can amplify misophonia. And I was, as I was listening and learning more about the mastery approach and looking at some of the literature, I was like, I, I feel like I could see this also being really helpful because there was definitely a theme when I talked with Rebecca about needing to approach, right? We know avoidance isn't going to be helpful. And so we need to approach situations, but we know exposure isn't helpful. And I would say exposure in this habituation framework, right? We're not right. going to habituate to sounds or, or images or whatever, however the, the misophonia may be manifesting. And it's still not a well understood disorder and not even a part of the DSM at this point. But will probably, I think, make some ground. There's a lot of people interested in knowing more about this. And I thought, as I heard more about the mastery approach, I'm like, it is. It's, it's all in the name. It's approach. It's approaching it. It's approaching your life and saying, even when this is really hard and I'm having a neurological response that I cannot change. And the same with the disgust space, just as you were talking about being in, a, in the insula in a different part of the brain. At the same time, I can still live my life even with the difficulty around this because I can value the things and the experiences in my life more and I can override, not that it'll go away, but I can override that this is hard for the sake of having these value-driven experiences and these relationships. I'd like to drill down on that point a little bit, because I think there's, there's two pieces to this, I think, that are important. One is, as you put it, you, you've laid out basically the, the act and exposure argument, which is I'm going to do things I value and I'm going to tolerate the distress because I'm moving towards things I value. And that's really important. That's the way acts is often used with ERP, for example. I also, in the mastery approach, I'm also favoring what I call pure act, which is making yourself comfortable and getting lots of practice in the situations you're avoiding. So as I'm conceptualizing a misophonia case, I think it's perfectly okay to take reasonable precautions to protect yourself against the things that are going to trigger you because getting used to it will be like getting used to sitting in a hot car wearing an itchy sweater. So I'd be okay if, if you've been avoiding social contact because of the way that misophonia makes you feel when you're out with people and can't control them, start doing some of these things with safe people with whom you're setting appropriate boundaries for how oddly they chew or whatever, or sit 10 feet away from them at the table or whatever you need to do to get yourself out there and comfortably get lots of practice. So those triggers soften over a long period of time for you. 
that was the key to my recovery and that I found that approach works really well. So that's a big difference is act is often presented as an adjunct to making yourself uncomfortable for the sake of your values. But I think it's equally important to make yourself comfortable and get lots and lots of practice. Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really good point too. And I'm glad that you, you highlighted that. I want to say, I think Dr. Jeremy Schumann quoted this and I can't remember who said this. He is great. Jeremy, if he does listen, will let me know and I'll update it on the blog. Along with everything else we're talking about and referencing your Anxiety Camp blog and the paper that you were able to publish on IOCDF regarding all of this and more. So you can always check fam, always check over at ocdfamilypodcast.com for this episode's blog and you can get linked to all the goodies. But what I remember Jeremy quoting someone sometimes, they were like, if someone were to sit on a tack, our job isn't to help them embrace the distress and just live their life anyway because of the pain that is yielded from exactly. the attack. It's to not have them have to sit on attack, right? And so when you're talking about if somebody wants to join the table here, then it's not just about being able to have value-driven seats at the table, even if we're sitting on attack, but you're talking about making it comfortable so that Maybe a tack is there on a chair, but you don't have to sit on that chair. You can still be a part of the conversation and join. And so making yourself, just as you said with the RV example, where you were able to get in it, run errands, eat eat quesadilla, make dinner, have your life. And it wasn't just about you tolerating that you were in there, but it was that you were comfortable because I was using judicial safety behaviors, I was comfortable. And once I could shed the shame that I wasn't doing what ERP was telling me to do, then yeah. I got well really quickly. Yeah. I mean, similarly, I I will even eat bacon now. I did the my no kidding. jaw wow. drop. I did a jaw drop with my sister the other day of just Excuse pointing me. out something about OCD. And I was like, uh, I ate a piece of bacon. And she was like, what? Because my entire life, as long as she can recall that I've been anti-bacon, I still pick most of it off. I pick most of it off and I don't have to eat it, but also I can eat it. And if I'm going to a dinner and somebody made something, I'm not going to be like, nope, can't eat what you made for us because it has bacon in it. And I can embrace it. And I've gotten to a point where I can be comfortable because really the smell of it, I think, is one of the, and the taste reminds me of the smell and it all gets mixed up in the olfactory senses there. But I, but at the same time, I don't like bacon, so I'm not going to make myself do of it. Course, I can be reasonable good. though. I can be reasonable around it. I can embrace mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm probably never going to like it or love the smell of it. And that's fine. That is a wonderful story. And I'm curious, Nicole, do you think the fact that you got to where you got, where you're engaging with bacon more than you have before and they even eat it once in a while and so forth, do you think that that's part of the glide slope that started when your husband was cooking the bacon out in the porch in three degree weather, where he made it safe for you to titrate yourself to where you eventually wanted to get? Oh, yeah. I don't think I could have just ripped off the Band-Aid because I would have still... Right. Yeah, I I, I do. And, and, And I think there were actually a lot of small steps. That came and really kind of creeped in. But yeah, I mean, it's it. I needed that. 
And I was very, very, it made me want to embrace it more doing it for him that he was willing to do that for me. And then it became less about the bacon at all. But he was willing to do that. And if you think about it in terms of when we talk with families about family accommodation around OCD, people are willing to do a lot for their loved ones to try and make it safe. I think it's just the whiplash, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. When people learn, oh, my gosh, but I was also accommodating it. And so then people are like often beating themselves up. Of, Where's the line? Am I accommodating? Force. And my my feedback to people will be like, hey, take a breath. Love your person. This is about being able to live your life and not be so concerned on dying on this hill that what if I do this and then it reinforces this for my loved one. Maybe, especially in these disgust-based themes, it's not going to just go away overnight. So either you're a failure, you failed the treatment, or you find ways to be able to move towards living your life and being able to be more comfortable in your environment. Absolutely. I mean, this is such an important point you bring up. I want to share this, not just with the fam here on the podcast, but also for my fellow clinicians out here, the difference between good versus bad safety behaviors, I think is critically important yes. here. Good safety behavior moves you towards better functioning. We had a belief once upon a time that any safety behavior at all would trap you in a web of compulsions that would eventually, you know, engulf you. And I have not found that to be the case at all when you use the right safety behaviors that move you towards engaging in life more. So, you know, the example I used to, you know, the the conference, for example, was, you know, if your kitchen feels contaminated and you can't go in it, if you wear ratty clothes and gloves and spend lots of time comfortably in there making delicious food because you're using the safety behaviors, you know, I guarantee you a month from now, you're going to feel differently about that kitchen than you did before. And that's a positive. That's not snaring you in compulsions and it's helping you. It's like a crutch, which keeps you from walking with tremendous pain when you've broken your leg as you're learning to heal from that. And eventually, if, you know, as you slowly get used to these situations, you can pull back on those safety behaviors as you get more comfortable. And that's what happened in my case. The other thing I want to say about family accommodation also, logging and tracking is really important. I mean, again, I have an engineering degree, so this is my jam, but (laughs) the fact is, you know, let's say that you've been working on this as a family for a month. You've been co-creating new goals every week and ratcheting accommodations down gradually. By the time you're accommodating 20% less a month later, that doesn't feel that different to the family. But when you show them the chart and show them the trajectory you're on and where that trajectory is heading over time, then that's treatment motivation for people. So now bad safety behaviors, conversely, are where the family's living in a food processor because they're doing so many accommodations for people so they can just function. That's something that you do have to work on. Another bad accommodation is if they're moving it towards avoidance. So the example I used at the conference was that same person with a contaminated kitchen. If you're using Uber Eats to order dinner and have it brought to you every night, that's moving you towards avoiding the kitchen. I wouldn't be supporting that as a clinician. So, you know, we're... We're evolving in the literature and we're evolving with our clinical experiences to being a little less heretical about the idea of safety behaviors within an evidence-based framework. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at the function of it and where is it pointing you? What direction is it pointing you? I I think it was that same chat where there was talk about a, a kid or an adult using the bathroom at Target, but they struggled to use the bathroom at their own space. 
And is that, right, exactly. is that bad? Because now we're like letting them have that and that accommodation. And the point was, well, how is this functioning? Again, I like the Uber Eats example. Yes. If we're only going to the bathroom in other places, that's not great. But if we're able to be comfortable going to the bathroom because the appeal of Target <laughs> is like, Ooh, I'm, okay. I can go shopping and I can actually do something and I don't feel nice. Then we mm -hmm. applaud that they used it. And uh, yay. Right, exactly. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so being able right. to look at that is going to be so, so important. We talk about that too with BFRBs where it's like, not just in BFRBs and OCD treatment too, people get concerned about kind of using this peripheral band-aid, sometimes a physical band-aid. Mm -hmm. Because if they're doing a band-aid, are they really addressing the issue? But what I love, ironically, is if you think of literally a band-aid, what is it designed to do? It's designed to help promote healing, to exactly. keep a a wound clean to prevent infection. Like literally, that's what the Band-Aid's for. Now, can we go through life with just all the Band-Aids? Probably not. But are we going to need to go through life with all the Band-Aids if we've learned to have, again, these positive experiences, value-driven experiences? I think the point that you made in the training that I went to was talking about counter-conditioning in terms of having something that you can look forward to that kind of goes along with this other thing, right? So you looked forward to not having to replace your RV because the pipes burst. <laughs> and then you were able to also use appropriate safety behaviors, good safety behaviors to be able to get through cleaning out the RV when, when that event happened uh, with the pesticides. So and another way that I think about that, that I've been using previous to even hearing more about the counter conditioning is I would talk with folks about habit coupling. Like, OK, well, if you know mm, what, if absolutely. what you're wanting to do is go to your friend's wedding and it's outdoors, but you feel like I can't go outdoors because I'm so disgusted by the animal droppings or whatever the things that I could run yeah. into. But I really want to go to my friend's wedding. If we could look at steps to be able to go to value-driven activities, whether it's having right, lunch exactly. at the park with your partner or, or going you. here and going there until you can be okay, okay being in that environment. And it's not like you're just like barely got through by later. clenching your fist through the wedding, but you actually got to enjoy the wedding because you could exactly. handle it. You could handle being outside. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's such an important and helpful point. And I think you pointed to some some good outcomes that have come from counter conditioning as well. Do I have time to share my counter conditioning story? Yeah, please. Because they had a really cool counter conditioning story. Counter conditioning is subject to early research at this point. There's been a, there was a paper by Jacob Finkelman in 2018 that showed with a short counter conditioning intervention. This is one of the first studies I saw that really tried to attack the disgust trigger itself. They discovered that your disgust level went from 4.5 out of 5 to 4 out of 5, big whoop, you know, so, so it's still early, but significant research, but I had an interesting story during COVID, you know, my wife and I were testing ourselves. One night I spilled the fluid that you test with on my fingers and I looked it up and it mentioned in an article, it was like one of the most toxic substances known to mankind. Naturally. Um, yeah. They said it was deadlier than cyanide is, was the term they it used. It was worse than and, getting COVID then. <laughs> But, you know, but here's what's important, Nicole, is the, so with my disgust of OCD, 
obviously I looked up the concentration of it and discovered it was like nowhere near anything where I had to worry about anything from a health standpoint. So I wasn't worried that I was going to die or get sick or anything like that. But the thought of having even one molecule of this stuff on my fingers was overwhelming. Yeah. But here's what changed everything for me. So as I'm reading this article, I see that they say it's deadly cyanide. And then I thought to myself, hmm, peaches have cyanide, a little bit of it. And I enjoy peaches and I eat them, you know, because I've been eating them all my life. Instead of having a mental image of this stuff being bitter and toxic, I had a mental image of it being like peaches. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, delicious peaches. Because of that mental image, I got past this much easier than I would have thought. So yeah. the, the counter-conditioning hypothesis is very intriguing. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. In all of these cases that we've been talking about today, one other point that I want to leave with is what's really exciting to me is that we're putting the experiences of working clinicians who try things and disseminate and share ideas into the research agenda. Uh -huh. So, I mean, the mastery approach is thanks to my RV, but it's also thanks to John Aberowitz, Adam Radomski, the people who put empirical research behind what we working clinicians yeah. have spawned or discovered in their own work, mm -hmm. trying to help people. And that's where we need to be going as a profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's such a great point. And it's not to say that people that don't have lived experience can't be of value. Like, for example, in the, in the software example, it's like you need to have testers, you need to have users using it to, to work out any bugs, but also you need people that know how to do that. And sometimes it's going to be people with lived experience. Sometimes it's going to be people that are just really good at coding and doing other things, right? Yes. And so similar to how you were mentioning, how's this going to go working with families? Are people going to be bothered if I don't have kids? And then they're like, no, and <laughs> this, this works. Exactly you right. can be, Technology. you can be a great contributor to the field. And certainly we have many that don't have lived experience, but I do notice the movement and so many folks, I mean, you've mentioned Chris and Liz who do a lot of work over at the YouTube channel for IOCDF. They do lunch and learns around different, different Q and A's and do a lot of great work. But you think of, you know, even Liz's story of being able to help bring that residential treatment to McLean. And yes, you, you think like the power and the movement, the motivation, again, there's big motivation in approaching these things, not because they're easy, but because we have people with lived experience going, I know what that was like, and by golly, I'm going to do what I can to create a brighter future and more hope for all of us. And so I think it really is a collaboration of, yeah, of folks with lived experience, people that have all that research. Some people are going to have both, but it's just really, really important. And so I, I'm I, glad you brought that. Yeah. Because some people, you know, first of all, I have such affection for the traditional research community, the people who've gotten us where we were. We didn't know what to do with OCD maybe 30 years ago. And they've changed so many lives with what we discovered about ERP, about ERP and ACT, inhibitory learning. You know, we stood on the shoulders of giants, literally. And I agree 100% that you don't have to have lived experience for that. And in fact, many of the giants of the fields don't identify as having lived experience. What's really exciting for me is, and I know some of the traditional ERP crowds sometimes feel a little threatened by the advocacy of the lived experience community. And I don't think that's our intention at all right. uh, among the people I know. 
is what's really important is that we have a voice yeah. that we're as you, the QA analogy is perfect, you know, with your husband's career, which I was into for a long time, is that we all have a role to play. And yeah. my role these days is advocating for that 30% or 40% of water who aren't responding to evidence-based treatment are in a very dark place and they're suffering matters. And we want to help them too. And we want to use our clinical experience, our lived experience to inform the research agenda so that we have a broader toolkit in the future that reaches everybody. Yeah, it is. It's something that is so important, having a voice, having a voice at the table. I do a lot yeah. of work with the autistic community. I have autistic children. I have many Good autistic view. clients. I, I have many friends, autistic, autistic, a lot of different neurodiversity affirming treatments are really attractive to me because I want to be able to give people the agency and support that. But I mean, I know how honored I've been to be able to speak into the autistic community about how can we improve treatment. And it's never going to have the same voice as somebody who has lived experience. And because I don't have lived experience, I might conceptualize things very differently. In some cases, for the kind of ignorance of not knowing and learning from my friends and my family, and in some situations, because I can bring a different viewpoint to it, not bad, wrong, just different, right? Not good or bad. It's not an evaluative statement. It's just a different way of processing. Then I can bring that piece to the table. But I also had to be invited to the table because this isn't about me going in and bossing around how this table talk is going to go. And so I think similarly, exactly. having the lived experience folks is really important. Having those other voices that are a part of the discussion, very important. I had Dr. Frederick Ardem on he doesn't have OCD, oh, yes. and he's a co-founder of ICBT, and yet he doesn't That's even right. have OCD. I mean, amazing things can come from folks being able to collaborate, but working together means working together. It doesn't mean one voice authoritatively over all other voices. It means collaboration. Yeah. That's holy work that you're doing with the autistic community, by the way. And uh, I'll, use a, I'll use a technical analogy. I mean, you know, many years ago, I published a paper on how to look at 3D behavior and using computer graphics. And I co-authored with a mathematician and it wasn't a computer graphics specialist. So we went back and forth. I'd say, how about we do it this way? He'd say, no, that's mathematically impossible. He'd say, how about we do it this way? Now that'd be a lousy picture. <laughs> and yeah. the, collaboration was what made the paper very successful. And the same was true as, you know, we need the expertise of the existing research community, the existing academic community, and you framed it beautifully. You know, we all need a voice. Yeah. And I like the way our profession's evolving these days. We, we have that voice nowadays and we're increasingly having that voice. The landscape of OCD treatment is so different now than it was even maybe three years ago because of that. And it's becoming much more cordial and collaborative, which is the way it always should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Always been my bit. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I'm thinking about it now, but I, before, probably just because this is also an audio podcast, but I always tell my guests, or it's a part of the whole procedure of getting things lined up. Thank you for sharing your voice. But it really is. It's like, we're better together and we need voices. We need 
collaboration. We don't have to agree. Sometimes we're going to agree. Sometimes we're going to disagree. Richard and I were talking about this before we started recording, too, in terms of the importance of building trusting relationships comes at building this communication, being willing to listen. You you commented that you had such hard treatment and then you found this fantastic provider because she listened. That was That's such, right. it's so important. So hearing our stories, sharing our stories, collaborating together, you writing that paper, Chris finding it and, and really amplifying the platform right. to be able to share and disseminate that. The work Bronwyn said, the work that we're all doing, the people, the fam listening here that has so many ways they could spend their time, but they want yes. to learn, how can I help my loved one? Thank you, family. Your voice matters too. And so I, I am just so appreciative of the time that you've taken today, Rich. And I really appreciate putting not only a voice, but your voice to discuss OCD, because I think it is such a prevalent problem and a lot of people have just felt like failures like I guess it's just not going to be better for me and the reality is no actually there is hope for you we're not giving up and this is a real problem but but there is hope for people experiencing discuss OCD and so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come be with us today well thank you Nicole I mean I've always said that the single biggest factor in getting over OCD is hope and your podcast has spread so much hope in the last couple of years. So, you know, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're better together, Rich. So the, the voices right. together, we make it happen. And so thank you. And, and uh, we look forward to learning more about Discuss OCD. So again, you can go over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com. You can check out all the info on Rich, and you can also get a, a link to hop on over to his blog. And I'm looking forward to seeing more and more information come out about this. I think the fact that it was so well attended at the last conference is only going to speak to, yes, more. We need more on this. And I think that is great because, again, using our voices, saying we need more, it leads to change. It leads to more hope. So thank you again. And, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for that. Okay, fam. How about them apples? I mean, it was quite the fruitful <laughs> chat. And Rich, I feel like I could have chatted for double the amount of time that we did, and we could still probably barely skim the surface of interesting conversation and exploration when it comes to the mastery approach for disgust-based OCD. But even more than that, I think the mastery approach has some legs that could be helpful in more than just the disgust realm. And seriously, ever since I've recorded this, I was like, Rich, I've got to connect you with Rebecca. Rebecca, we got to chat, man. Because Rebecca's growing research around misophonia and just so many of the things that Rich shares with us today felt so applicable when we conceptualize treatment. And I mean, honestly, even when I think about for our BDD warriors, so body dysmorphic disorder warriors, there can be this disgust. I am disgusting and the distress is real. And I think that this could even be an exciting lens to explore for BDD. But even if we're just looking more broadly within the treatment of OCD, could the mastery approach be another avenue for hope? 
I think it's an exciting possibility. And I'm really excited to see this conversation continue to grow and where the research continues to grow from here. I'm also really thankful to all the voices of the researchers, our fellow clinicians, our lived experience warriors, and family members on how we can collaborate. I say it all the time, but I say it because it's true. This isn't just a marketing angle or a tagline, fam. The truth is we really are better together. These ideas and this growth is born out of collaboration. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show, where we discuss how we can apply these things, what we're learning today or uh, yesterday, even if we could, right? Like, how can we apply these notes to our here and now? And I was just thinking about where we ended our conversation with Rich today, chatting about this idea of counterconditioning, which is interesting and compelling. And Rich told his story about the lovely and sweet peaches that allowed his brain to reframe the molecule of the toxin from his COVID test into something he could feel comfortable with. And it reminded me of a story that my husband may have told on the podcast before. I feel like he has. But for anyone who hasn't heard it, just a real quick Cliff Notes version here. My husband used to have a ton of healthy anxiety, and it really impacted him. And at one point, many, many years ago, when we were, I think we were still dating, and we are living in Los Angeles, he had to get an MRI because of some back problems that he was experiencing. Now, fast forward to today, the man has actually, at this point, had back surgery that gave him his quality of life back. So he wasn't just feeling anxiety about health but he was also experiencing an underlying medical issue that would lead to him needing back surgery. So you can imagine the MRI was important. But that real pain that he was feeling was amplified a thousand times over by his anxiety surrounding what might they find on the MRI? What if he panics in the MRI? What if he has a melted spine? All of these different possibilities, right? Imagined possibilities. So he knew he needed to get this MRI, but he was like low-key freaking out. And to be fair, MRIs are not most people's idea of a good time. It can feel intimidating. They're uncomfortable. Many people can feel claustrophobic. And usually you're getting an MRI to rule out a potential more serious medical problem, right? So the stakes do feel reasonably high and it can just feel like a buffet of yuck. Okay, so he was feeling very anxious, but it's not like a walk in the park exactly either. And so as he was trying to approach this appointment, what he ended up doing, which not only helped him get through that MRI, but all subsequent MRIs that he ever needed surrounding back, etc. from then on, what he did was he imagined that he was going to a party with the doctors, right? And the doctors were having some drinks and having fun. And they were like, you know what we should do? Let's give each other MRIs. And they're like, that sounds fun. Because, you know, like you do. Isn't that what most doctors do for fun? Doctors are like, we're so misunderstood. It's just kidding. But he allowed himself to play out this narrative of like, okay. Bill's up first. Bill's getting his MRI. Okay, and then we'll do your MRI. Let's look at our scan. And you know what? As silly of a narrative as that may sound, him getting into that mindset and then having it be his turn to have it actually not only allowed him to get through the MRI, but he actually was able to rest enough to the point that I think he even mentioned he fell asleep for part of the MRI. The dude was like panicked about it. And then he was able to relax to the point that he could sleep through part of it. 
How? How did he get there? Well, he was able to lean into this safety behavior that drove him towards the goal of being able to get the MRI. And so is that a bad thing? I mean, it's kind of like the grown-up version of giving a speech at school and maybe we just imagine everybody in their underwear, right? Like, which is also kind of a weird thing, but that's another story for another day. But seriously, he was able to get what he needed and he was able to be comfortable enough to fall asleep. It helped him approach and not only address his healthcare needs, but be comfortable doing so. And when we think about something like the mastery approach, we think about how giving ourselves good safety behaviors can actually drive us toward our ultimate values and goals. And that can be pretty freeing. So I want you to think about if there are any areas for maybe you or a loved one where you're feeling stuck in OCD. Are there spaces where treatment has worked really well, but this thing over here, ugh, it feels hopeless. Maybe you just need to come to terms that it's never going to feel better than this. Have you ever had that thought? Has your loved one? And I want you to consider what you feel like you have exposed yourself to. Have you exposed yourself to the perceived threat? Or have you exposed yourself toward the life you want, the health you want, the relationships, the job, the school? Because if we just shift our posture a little bit, toward the exposure of the life we want, of what we're aiming for, then yes, stopping the compulsions, reducing inferential confusion, it's all very important and it's helpful. No argument there. But if you or your loved one's brain isn't budging, it's life-giving to know that there can be an alternative. So if anything, this conversation based on the shoulders of giants, as Rich said, great research that establishes the foundation for this food, for this thought. So what is one area, one place where you might just want to explore and see, okay, if I gave myself permission to modify, to use this approved functioning towards me moving towards my value safety behavior for the purpose of me getting to live the life and function in the life that I have, is it worth it? And maybe share it with your team, with your treatment provider. Have a conversation about it. Because maybe, just maybe, finding these good, safe behaviors that allow us to approach the life we dream of can lead us to encountering our own watershed moments. If you're a practitioner and you've struggled with allowing modified safety behaviors because it really just feels like, oh my gosh, am I moving this client toward their values or am I just reinforcing the accommodation and compulsion? that is keeping that learning stuck in the brain, I would encourage you to check out Rich's IOCDF article endorsed by IOCDF peer advocate and board member Chris Tronson that really helped increase the awareness surrounding discussed OCD and the helpfulness of this mastery approach. Maybe there are some helpful safety behaviors that will actually function to squash avoidance and bring relief beyond the temporary moment. That might feel very foreign, but this can be implemented in a way that validates the human being in front of you and actually frees them from the hold disgust can have on them. Disgust that really struggles to habituate, even over longer treatment periods. And so while you don't have to treat utilizing mastery approach or even change your treatment philosophy, what I do ask is can we open ourselves up to the curiosities in front of us? and the breadcrumbs that are provided by the research 
and the clinical experience of lived experience warriors with these themes. And fam, if you're like, you know what, I'm sold. This, it makes sense to me. You don't need to convince me. I'm here. I want to approach. Let me master all the things. This makes sense. Where can I learn more? Just a quick reminder that you can jump on over to this episode's blog over at ocdfamilypodcast.com. This is season two, episode 75, and you can get linked to Rich's blog as well as all the other resources, the article that we just mentioned, and a link for OCD Training School. Because Rich will be providing a training through OCD Training School this spring where you can learn more as he dives into the broad and common topic of contamination-based OCD. Now, contamination-based OCD, while we can have disgust triggers show up, it is not exclusive to disgust. And this training at large is going to be covering contamination OCD. But we also can see disgust-based themes pop up. And so getting training to be able to flag that, to be able to spot disgust OCD and ways that treatment may need to vary to help move the dial for folks is also going to be included there. So if you're interested in learning more, you can definitely check out that amazing resource. I believe there's going to be a live training in the spring and at some point following a self-study course then that will be offered through OCD Training School where you can go learn more, get yourself your CEUs, all that jazz that we care about as uh, practitioners here. So check out OCD Training School for more information on that. And with that, fam, I have to say, it's time to get this show on the road. You might even already be driving or riding a bike or walking on a road. So how about that full circle moment, if that's where you are, but wherever you are, I must say our goodbye. But please remember, fam, there's always room for you here. And we hope to see you again because we are. We're better together. See you next time. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like discussing disgust when treatment feels like a bust. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.